You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Okay, if you have not heard about Cash App, you're going to love me. You want more from all these free apps used for just free and fast money transfers, right? Well, I've got the hookup for you. The Cash App. The Cash App card is a free Visa debit card that lets you use your Cash App balance to pay online and in stores. It's also the only way to get Boost. Now, let me tell you about Boost because it's exclusive to Cash App. Boosts are reusable instant discounts that work at places you actually go to, everywhere from Starbucks to Walmart to even the PlayStation Network store. You can do so much more than buy and save money with this. You can even purchase shares of stock in companies you love by investing as little as $1. Banking is also made easy. With Cash App, you can directly deposit paychecks, tax returns, and more to your Cash App balance using the unique account and routing numbers. And if you don't think things can get any cooler, it does by allowing you to buy and sell Bitcoin, the money of the future. Selling and receiving money on Cash App is as easy as entering a phone number, using another user's name, or simply scanning a QR code. Hit the special link in the show notes and get $5 just for signing up. That is, use that link in the show notes and get $5 just for signing up. So go on, go ahead and hit that link in the show notes and get set up with Cash App today. Whether you're looking for a comedic retelling of the history of the modern libertarian movement or a dark comedy about the seedy world of American politics, my books, Stay Away from the Libertarians, as well as How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship, have been entertaining thousands of readers throughout the world since 2018. Whether you're looking for the next great book on your reading list or considering a funny and captivating book for the politico or history nut in your life, you can grab a copy of either Stay Away from the Libertarians or How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship today on either Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. Amazon links for the print and ebook editions of both books are available in the show notes. yourself you're on the run with remzo w martinez all right folks so you've known on twitter there are three things i usually complain about either life itself other journalists i don't like other journalists i do like oh and the fourth thing i've been ranting about stuff going on at disney marvel as a whole but there's one part of the whole thing that i usually don't complain about because it's a it's a different wing of the whole thing I've been trying to understand. It's this whole new Star Wars canon that has come out in, in the past couple of years alone. I know some of you are just thinking of the Skywalker saga, which I promise we will not really talk about. But I have a whole new, like I, I took the Star Wars red pill and now life isn't the same. So there's this thing I want to talk about. I just know that I wouldn't be able to do it justice, so I went ahead and brought somebody on who is the sage of this situation. He's the host of Beltway Banthas, your one-stop shop for freedom, fandom, and Star Wars, Stephen Kent. Stephen, thanks for coming on. Hey, nice to be here with you, Remzo. All right, so first off, I got to say this. I'd never expected the cartoons and comics to make me re-watch Attack of the Clones. 
yeah, it will totally change your perspective when you actually go down the the uh, the wormhole of comic books and extra materials for Star Wars. And one thing I, I always try to clarify with people as a consumer of those products is like, Star Wars has to be able to stand on the movies. The movies are what matter to the general population. They're what sort of define Star Wars place in the popular culture. But boy, are those extra materials really helpful in filling in the uh, the blank spaces, both with the prequels and with the sequel trilogy, which we just finished up, which uh, I think had even more blank spaces that need filling. Uh, and those comics can actually really help with that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I always consider myself kind of a passive Star Wars fan. You know, it's part of it's part of American culture, I really think. You eat barbecue on Fourth of July and you watch Star Wars when it's in theaters. Only people who hate life don't go see that. But it, it wasn't until recently when I found, much like everyone else, more time on my hands where I really started jumping into it. And I never had an appreciation for the lore of Star Wars, really, until The Mandalorian came out on Disney+. And all that did was make me crave more of that content. So I jumped into um, the Clone Wars animated series. I binged Rebels. I'm starting uh, Star Wars Resistance. I've been binging, you know, basically all the extra content on YouTube available explaining certain things like the origin of the kyber crystals, which is just insane in its own right. Now, now when I look at a red lightsaber, I'm thinking, God, what did they have to do to make that yeah, happen? You know, the, the, the Rogue One movie was one of the first films that I thought really engaged with the extra materials in a, a new and interesting way. And it was really just like saying the word kyber, you know, that the fact that the, the Death Star is powered off of basically the remains of the Jedi Order, the kyber crystal is used once as like the weapon of the noble knights. And then it is what creates that death laser that can destroy entire planets. And it's just something that I think if you just are a casual fan, you watch Rogue One and they're like talking about this thing called kyber crystals and you'd never know unless you read the comics and played video games um, that kyber crystals are what makes a Jedi lightsaber work because they're not discussed in the original films. I don't think they're really mentioned by name in the prequels either. Um, it's totally an extra materials kind of thing and you just have to pick it up. Absolutely. And I mean, other than just the kyber crystals, whether you're looking at more more secondary characters like um, uh, Tarkin or Ashoka or even Grand Admiral Thrawn, I just completed the Thrawn novel. and The new oh, revamped trilogy? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the new that's canon. really really interesting stuff that they like had Timothy Zahn go back and retell um, the Thrawn story in the new canon timeline. And I'm so glad you went through Rebels because Rebels was like a sneak attack of a good show. Where I, growing up, Clone Wars was on television. I actually didn't watch it when it was first originally out. I, I just sort of thought it was kind of campy. Thought it was was a little bit childish. And there are a lot of kiddish episodes in the filler right between the episodes that really matter but the way that star wars extra canon works is you have to kind of get through a lot of derpy side missions and kind of just like fluffy episodes to get to some stuff that changes everything absolutely and, and it's beautifully told and if you're a fan of other other sorts of fandoms like avatar and the last airbender for example you know that was where dave filoni kind of came from before blessed be his name really helped take over the Clone Wars and make it what it is today, which, again, reframes much of the prequel trilogy. Absolutely. And 
I, I've got to say, of all the things that completely changed my mind about how I see the Star Wars universe, the additional material fr- from either the comics, the actual novels, or the shows, it w- once you see those and then you go back and watch the films, it's like you're you're watching them with brand new eyes. They're never the same again. And the one thing that's it's been kind like of... Like I say, like, you know, Darth Vader, right? Like looking out into space like he always does in the original films. After you've gone through the Clone Wars and Rebels, you kind of are like... What is he thinking about? He might be thinking about his his pal Snips, Ahsoka, and you know, wondering where she is because the ending of the Clone Wars saga had him go and visit the gravesite of that fallen Star Destroyer, and you know that he knows Ahsoka is out there, and they face each other again in Rebels, and you just kind of think like, oh, it's not always Luke Skywalker that's on his mind. Sometimes he's just thinking about everything else that he's lost. He is so much more tragic as a character, and I think I, I think all of this extra stuff really fleshes him out because it seems like once he finally becomes Darth Vader, he's just a very 2D villain. Mm-hmm. And there's really not much there. There's really no depth. It's like yeah, Anakin Skywalker's really criticized great. back in the day uh, when these films were originally out that Anakin's fall felt rushed. Mm-hmm. And they they were like, I don't really understand how we get from episode two to episode three, which takes place in the span of like two or three days. Anakin goes from being influ- uh, easily influenced by the dark to being a child killer. And the, the fandom feedback at that time was always just like, I don't know how this happened so fast. Um, and then the Clone Wars was kind of viewed as the thing that really filled in why he grew to distrust the Jedi so much and why that, that switch was so easily activated um, when everything started to fall apart in Revenge of the Sith. And it's kind of the same for the fall of the Jedi Order. Why did the Republic go overnight being willing to get rid of the Jedi Order, who are these heroes of theirs. Well, they weren't really their heroes. In fact, they mm-hmm. distrusted them very much. Um, and the Clone Wars helps explain why that is. And, and you hit it right on the head, which is what I really want to jump into, because I said this to my brother the other night, and he looked at me like I was apologizing for like the worst thing on Earth. But we were talking about like the ethics of the Clone Wars and you know whether or not the Jedi were the moral authority of the Republic. And I looked at him like, you know, if you really think about it, after looking at all this extra material, the Republic was kind of terrible. The Republic was kind of terrible. Okay. So I'm um, not completely off on that. Yeah. You know, in, in, on Beltway Bantha's my podcast where we break down the politics of Star Wars and how Star Wars kind of impacts our politics. Some of the best conversations that I've had as, as of recently, and I had on Ben Dominich of the Federalist and he just had a really great rant about how you have to make a case for defending democracy. Democracy is not just an inherent good. It's not obviously good. There's trade-offs. There are reasons why most of human history is colored by dictatorship and monarchy. It's because we're kind of drawn as a people to having direction. We like being controlled. We like to know where the boundaries are. And democracy fudges a lot of those boundaries. And it makes us, in many ways, unsafe and insecure. Um, So you have to renew the promise and the value of democracy every generation. I was just this morning, my my daughter brought in her homeschool materials uh, from her public school about direct democracy versus representative democracy. And it was a really exciting opportunity for me to say like, uh, 
what do you think is better? What makes more sense to you based off the book definitions? And she's did you like, give oh, her the right answer? Or did yeah, you give get, her the right answer that's going to get her an F? I, I, gave <laughs> case, I gave her the case for representative democracy and why the people cannot be trusted, um, which is the case that I, I firmly believe in and that this country is, is founded off of. But you know, the point is that it's natural for my daughter to go off the definitions. Oh, well, direct democracy seems more virtuous. That seems like the right thing. And I go, have you ever heard of the whole thing about like buffaloes, like running off a cliff <laughs> because they're being chased by a predator? That's direct democracy. It's just, it's that. And Star Wars does not make a naturally good case for why democracy is worth preserving. The Republic was corrupt. They were correct about that. Padme noticed it in episode one. Palpatine noticed it. And that's why he preyed upon it and found his opportunity to do it. Um, Star Wars presents a democracy that is very much um, lost its soul. And the Jedi are at the heart of that. And I don't want to go too long with that rant here, but um, we can kind of unpack why that is. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the things that I caught primarily by looking at, um, you know, I, I did a lot of research into Qui-Gon Jinn. What was his problem with the Jedi Council? Then I started jumping more into the Republic and how the Senate worked. And three things really came to mind, probably because, you know, of the way that libertarians see government. But one, standing army. Once they get that clone army from Camino, it's like they've basically jumped the shark. Nothing good's going to happen. So now they have this standing army. It's essentially a slave army, too. And when you look at some of the books and things like that, a lot of the citizens of the Republic were not happy with that Appalled because they're, they were completely freaked mm -hmm. out, which is one of the reasons why when Palpatine becomes the emperor, please correct me if I'm wrong, they phase out the clones and they start this voluntary army. Yeah, they do. They do phase out the the clone program. There were huge ethical concerns uh, amongst the people of the Republic about having an organic living army dying for a cause that they didn't fully understand or, or appreciate. Um, the the thing that clouds all of the morality of the Clone Wars is that we, the audience, know there's a Dark Lord playing both sides, and that's what kind of makes it really complicated. You're like, well, Palpatine's doing one thing, and Sidious is leading the Separatist movement. But you have to wonder, what is inherently wrong about the separatist movement? Nothing necessarily. They didn't feel it's... they were getting represented by the Republic. You know, Star Wars never really makes a, a super clear case about why the separatist movement was inherently bad. They weren't getting fair representation out in the Outer Rim worlds, the inner core worlds where Coruscant is, was considered to be opulent and disconnected from their interests. And it makes you wonder, right? Like, why would Coruscant have in mind what is good for the rest of the galaxy? And you see that play out on Tatooine when Qui-Gon goes there and Padme is, is sort of blown away that slavery still exists in these worlds because the Republic doesn't necessarily have a say of how things are going to go or look. And in Rogue One, you have one of your main heroes, Cassian Andor. He is uh, uh, someone who came from a family of separatists. Are we supposed to believe that he was a bad person because he was fighting alongside some corporate interests and a droid army when he was just a boy? The Republic was not inherently good. And the separatist movement made quite an effort in their propaganda. And this is outlined in the book, Star Wars Propaganda by 
Pablo Hidalgo to point out that the Republic had no respect for organic life. And that was why the separatist movement insisted on using a droid army. Now, that's propaganda, and that's not entirely intellectually honest, but it was how they marketed their, their movement to the rest of the galaxy, that they wanted autonomy for individuals and they respected organic life and that the Republic did not. I, I always thought it was weird how the Mon Calamari, for example, were part of the separatists. But then when you look at episodes four through six, I mean, they were really the people bankrolling the rebellion. Yeah, you know, and it just sort of um, kind of flips the entire dynamic on its head. Um, the Republic becomes the empire. And most people who lived through the entire saga know that to be true, that the Republic was one broken system that was stamped, you know, trampling over the, the rights, the autonomy, and the economic well-being of most of the galaxy. And it just morphed into something even more hideous being the empire. So the Mon Calamari, you know, Admiral Akbar, their position remained the same throughout. You go from being a separatist to being part of the rebel alliance. And that's the Cassian Andor story from Rogue One as well. That I, I did not actually ever know that about Cassian Andor. I always just thought he was the school, he was like the cool James Bond-ish guy from yeah. Rogue One. It's, that, a, it's a brief piece of dialogue in Rogue One. He's having a feud with Jen Erso after uh, the death of her father. And he, he mentions briefly that his family were separatists and he's been in this fight against the empire his entire life. Oh, I took that very figuratively. I didn't know that was like an actual statement. Like he was just Mm -hmm. stating a fact. Yeah. From his perspective, he's been fighting stormtroopers, a.k.a. Republic troopers, since he was a boy. Oh, that's deep. That's deep. Okay, now this is the (laughs) one thing where when I saw this, and this is towards like season five of Clone Wars, this is where when... When when the two-part episode begins, I'm like, okay, David Filoni must have been reading like Hayek or somebody or maybe even Bastia. It's the whole – it has to do with um, Padme's ex-boyfriend when they're basically trying to nationalize the banking union. Mm -hmm. That is the most like on-the-point destruction of the state type of metaphor that they could have thrown in there where basically they're afraid that the that the banking sector is going to go ahead and secretly keep funding the separatists so what they do in order to protect the bank is that they just take it over entirely yeah the republic nationalizes their banking system uh, in order to sort of shore up the war effort against the separatists and again what makes all this so complicated is that you you know you know Sidious is playing both sides so it's not clear exactly what his game is except to degrade the integrity of the republic and Padme's ex-boyfriend um, kind of you know fellow love interest in the republic his name was Rush Clovis he was a senator from the world of Scipio and Scipio if uh, you know for all of those who, who are not familiar with it, that is the world associated with the international banking clan. These are the guys with um, really long, tall heads uh, who are part of the banking clan and part of the separatist movement in Star Wars. You see them briefly in episodes two and three uh, when the separatists have their little get-togethers. And uh, Rimzo, in some of the old books that are now in the legends category, Darth Plagueis comes from the world of Scipio. That was Sidious's master, yes. right? Sidious's master was a part of the banking clan, and he was one of those Scipio aliens 
uh, very tall, very gangly. And much of Star Wars lore since that has been added to Legends has kind of acknowledged that most of what is in the Darth Plagueis book should be still taken as as partial truth, uh, which just sort of adds on all these really interesting layers about Palpatine's overall plan. And it was in nationalizing the banks and making them part of the Republic. It was just to tear the Republic's fabric apart, not necessarily to win the war, because winning the war was not the goal degrading the Republic was the goal. And that's where the Jedi kind of come in, in making them the real villains of the Republic um, and making them the fall guy for the fall of this democratic system. Exactly. And I mean, just where you left off, that's what makes the siege of Mandalore almost kind of you know, screwed up in a way because I always thought, okay, when, when we start to get towards the latter end of the series, when they bring Darth Maul back and everything, you just think that the Mandalorians are like these, these mean warrior type dudes. They're just trying to get into fights with everybody. But then you actually look back at like the war between the Jedi and the Mandalorians and the Mandalorians were just like, listen, we just want our own planet. We just want to do our own thing. So when it's time for the Republic and the Jedis to track Maul and track all these separatists, and they're wondering why the Mandalorians don't want to work with them. They shouldn't be all that surprised because the Republic never gave them much of a reason to trust them to begin with. Yeah, and it kind of ended up being one of those situations where they got involved in a conflict on Mandalore to chase down some sort of big wanted terrorist, uh, and it compromised. Oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it compromised the values <laughs> of both sides, both the Mandalorians, who I think were very reluctant to get that intervention on the half, uh, behalf of the Republic. And it was not necessarily the desire or will of the Republic to, to be involved in another conflict. But, you know, they decided it was worthwhile to get this known terrorist, Darth Maul. Um, who Darth Sidious, by the way, you know, Emperor Palpatine or Chancellor Palpatine at that time, needed to have eliminated because Darth Maul was sort of a, a loose link in his chain that could expose his entire plot to take down the Republic. And we've kind of talked a little bit on and off about the nature of the Jedi and the Republic. And the real problem with the Galactic Republic was the Jedi. And most members of the Republic knew that to be the case. Were they actually a democratic system implementing their will across the galaxy, imposing taxes as they saw fit in this area or that? Or were they being led by a religious cult who had a war-hungry um, sort of uh, war path against this mythical Sith Lord that they think is out there and guiding the separatist movement? A lot of members of the Republic, and I mean citizens, did not feel that this war to stop the separatist movement was a principled protection of democracy, but more of a vindictive effort by the Jedi to squelch out the opposition of their enemies. Absolutely. I, I can see how, you know, pr pretending you don't know what's really going on behind the scenes of the Clone Wars, um, you know, it almost seems like this dark, evil Sith Lord is kind of like their equivalent of like the WMDs. Well, you see, we have to go there because that's where he is. No, we don't know who he is. No, we don't know what he looks like. No, we don't have much evidence, but we know he's there. And then we obviously know that through Darth Maul, that was when they had the real claim of saying, see, this guy just didn't pop out of nowhere. Something's going on. But I am curious because I don't think it's ever really stated. Was the Jedi Council like a different branch of the of the government of the Republic? Or were they their own separate entity that dealt with the affairs of the Republic? Because so they're often saying, like, even Ahsoka yeah. says this in the last episode of Clone Wars, where she's like, you know, 
we were we weren't meant to be soldiers but i feel like ever since i became a jedi that's all i've been yeah so it's definitely the the difference of the ideal versus the reality the jedi are not supposed to be involved in the affairs of the galactic republic and you see that most transparently stated in episode one um, when Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn are there sort of to, to deal with the Trade Federation and their blockade of Naboo. There's a sense between the both of them that this is actually not Jedi business and that, you know, an economic stalemate between the world of Naboo and the Trade Federation is just, you know, business as usual in the galaxy. This is just sort of a thing that happens, right? There's not a role for the keepers of peace and justice in an economic trade dispute. But then what they uncover is that it is more than an economic trade dispute and that there's something dark and, and Sith-oriented going on here. And that's why they sort of sign off on getting involved here. It's when Darth Maul attacks them on Tatooine that they realize this is not a trade dispute, right? <laughs> and that's kind of where it all goes downhill. Um, the, the entire institution of the Jedi is supposed to be defenders of peace and justice in the galaxy, and they they help to sort out injustice. But by signing off on whatever the Republic deems to be peace and justice, that's how you get Qui-Gon going to Tatooine and freeing Anakin, but not demanding that his mother be freed as well, because they are compromised in terms of their morality and sense of what is justice. Their sense of justice is whatever the Republic deems to be just. And that is that's not how you define justice or peace or war. Um, the the Jedi were definitely compromised by that point of the of the saga. Yeah, and I mean it's easy to blame everything on Palpatine. I mean it, it it's all essentially his grand plan coming to fruition. But I tried to really understand like was it just him or were other people just as you know guilty of? sowing the seeds of destruction for the Jedi Council and the Republic. Well, they were. It was self-inflicted, Rimzo. I mean, and it's they, all Jar Jar's fault. Yeah, I mean... Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, like, seriously, that was the thing where it's like, is it is it just him or is it other people that are just, you know, it, it was always going to happen. It didn't need Palpatine to kind of set off the dominoes from there. What Palpatine did was shine a light and and enhance things that were already happening within the Jedi Order and the galaxy at large. Mace Windu is kind of the embodiment of the Jedi's ultimate folly, which was to think that they had a role in governance. There's this moment in Revenge of the Sith, which is a very grim moment, but you kind of pass over it very quickly and you can miss it. When Mace Windu says, all right, so they're about to depose General Grievous, we're going to need um, to take control of the Senate to ensure a, a steady transition. And Yoda says, and, and strokes his chin, great care we must take. And that's because he knows that they are in really, really uncharted waters. They're talking about being in charge of the Galactic Republic while a new election takes place. And you have to wonder how on earth they deluded themselves into thinking that they had such a role to play. But the Mace Windus of the world really believed that the Jedi had a power not just to do good, but to actually define what good is. And it's that sort of folly which sort of led them to, to be deeply involved in governance and for Palpatine to scapegoat them as the source of all the problems. All he did was give them more latitude to do what they were already doing, which was overstep their mandate. 
It, I mean, it, it's horrifying now that I think about it because when I heard that quote in the film, I just thought, oh, well, that makes sense because the Jedi are the good guys. Now you really look at it and it's like, oh my God, that's terrifying. And it's, I, it's, a, I yeah. it's a horrible betrayal of, of democracy and of the system of government they say they're trying to protect. And, you know, that's just, Rimzo, it's what these entire prequel <laughs> movies are about is good intentions. Your good intentions do not mean anything when it comes to, uh, to government, when it comes to principles, when it comes to constitutional rule and order. Uh, Anakin's good intentions of, of saving someone he loved, there is such thing as wrong that you can do when you're trying to, to save somebody. It's the entire conflict we're having right now during COVID-19 about the good intentions of trying to save every single life, but what are you willing to do in order to protect as many people as possible? You could You could possibly dissolve the entire uh, constitutional order and, and rule of government um, if you're trying to protect every life, it's that meme that is going around of the founding fathers, um, you know, bringing in the constitution where it says like, well, none of this matters if people get sick or <laughs> 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 like all of this is void, right? If there's a pandemic. And that's the point is, is you have to stick to rule of law and protecting the government, even if it means that there's going to be risk or uncertainty or danger if you don't. And I mean, you you brought up Mace Windu as a prime example of that. I, I was joking slightly earlier when I mentioned Jar Jar Banks, but I okay. So I did watch Attack of the Clones again recently. He has he's a lot of people do not blame him for what happens, but when you really look at it, at least from what I was able to take away from it, a lot of this is his fault. Because if he didn't condense all the main powers of the Senate into the office of the Chancellor, Palpatine wouldn't have been able to really pull off what he ultimately did. And in a way, Jar Jar represents people who only see things at the surface value. He's, you know, he's the side comedic character in The Phantom Menace, but then when he becomes an ambassador or a senator, whatever they call him, like he he only he only reacts. That's all he does. And that's how a lot of people are. Yeah. So, so he is Obviously, an actual satire. There's there's the moment in Attack of the Clones when Masa Meda, the blue horned assistant to Palpatine. I always wondered name. if that guy had a name. Yeah, his name is Masa Meda, and he's actually a real power player. He he does know who Palpatine is. He is aware that Palpatine is a Sith Lord and he's part of the conspiracy. Oh, he knew um, about that? He does. He does. And he's he's in on it. You can um, never trust people with the staff. No, you can't trust the staff. <laughs> they they know how the system works. And he says, you know, if only Padme were here, they need someone brave to put the, the resolution on the floor to give Palpatine more powers. And they frame it exactly how you always see it framed in the news. The people, the people who have the willingness, the courage, the boldness to question the constitutional order and put forward more power in the office of the president, they're brave. They're the people who are willing to do something bold to protect people, to save lives. And Jar Jar is that guy. He's the person who doesn't think, Oh God. What if I'm what if I'm being played here? What if people are not honest in their intentions? What if there are people out there who actually want to undermine the system in which we live? And in that case, they they you know Palpatine was ready and waiting 
for someone to put forward the motion for him to have emergency powers to order the <laughs> the institution of a clone army and then to lure the Jedi into overstepping their mandate and becoming part of the army, which would then be framed as a coup on his power. And it all comes down to that. And you know how George Lucas always would say that the, the movies were inspired by the fall of Rome. Think back to Rome and how often generals in the war effort on part of the, the Roman army were always sort of feared as potential usurpers to the, the Roman Senate. Uh, it was always believed that they would have an army behind them, they would have the support of the public, and they would be the, the natural people to then overtake democratic government in Rome, and that's what happened many times. They were not looking for Emperor Palpatine to become a possibility. Most members of the Republic were fearful of an Emperor Yoda or an Emperor Mace Windu. An Emperor Yoda would be pretty cool, but I do understand what you're what you're talking about. So I okay. So here, here's my question: when when the Empire is formed and the rebellion starts, what are they really trying to bring back? Like, are they really trying to bring back? the Republic the way it was, or by that point, they understand the mistakes the Republic made. And for this new Republic, they want to form eventually. Do they make it better? I know that Disney canon has thrown out a lot of the stuff from the legends universe. So we're still trying to understand if they're going to fill in that gap, but that is something that's only talked about briefly because they talk about democracy. They talk about all the nice things, but you know, the Republic also talked about all those nice things and we saw how that turned out. Yeah. It's, it's always been kind of unclear what exactly the rebel Alliance is seeking to restore. If you look at the hierarchy of the rebel Alliance, it's a lot of really wealthy interests who all lost their place in the pecking order during the, the status quo of the Republic. And my cynical brain always kind of looks at that, the Mon Mothmas, the Bail Organas of the world being atop the Rebel Alliance. And I'm like, well, yeah, of course they're, they're unhappy about all this. They lost their cushy place in society and government on Coruscant when Palpatine took over. That's not to say that what they're, they're wanting is wrong. Um, but you can find, and I encourage anybody to search it up themselves, you can Google Declaration of Rebellion, Star Wars, and you can find the canon Declaration of Independence from Mon Mothma's Rebel Alliance, where they are, are declaring exactly what they want from the Empire and what they want in a new system of government. It's not so much an outline of what things are going to look like, right? This is the Declaration of Independence versus the Constitution. The Constitution is the promise of what the United States is going to be about. The Declaration of Independence is saying what has been usurped, um, you know, by by the British government. You know, they say in the the Declaration of um, Rebellion. We believe that the Galactic Empire has willfully and malignantly usurped the rights of the free beings of the galaxy, and therefore it is in our unalienable rights to abolish it from the galaxy. You'll find that a lot of the language is very, very familiar. You've raised taxes without the consent of a tax. You have murdered and imprisoned millions without benefit of a trial. You have unlawfully taken land and property. So again, as socialist and, and lefty as you might think that like Disney and the, the entertainment world might be, you can look right into the Declaration of Rebellion and see, oh, 
property rights, taxation without consent. It's all here. We generally agree on these things as being more virtuous, um, but yet you kind of don't see some of those values play out when you talk to the actual creators themselves about their politics. Yeah, and, and I mean, the one thing that I think Star Wars Rebels as a show really showed us was just how invasive the Empire became. Because prior to that, prior to, you know, the Disney acquisition of Star Wars, of course, you had some comics that showed how, you know, the Empire's blowing up planets and they're not the nicest guys. But there was never really a clear sign of what they were doing. I mean, we know that through A New Hope, that trade was a big issue. That's what Han Solo is doing with Jabba the Hutt. They're trying to get past trade barriers because he's a smuggler. And then we know that, you know, a lot of these planets are occupied by the Empire. But, I mean, what does that really mean? So in Rebels, when they show that, you know, people can't sell fruit on the streets without getting a permit, that people are constantly under this dictatorial police state, that, you know, this, this empire is actually getting in the way of the everyday lives of the citizenry. Yes, and what they traded uh, in exchange for that, in exchange for having stormtroopers on their streets and having systems put in place for how everybody had to live, they were delivered, Rimzo, from the chaos of the Clone Wars and of civil war in the galaxy. There's a real reason for the Empire existing, and it's because people were very tired of mass conflict and war uh, destroying the entire galaxy of droid armies coming into their communities and, and pillaging and destroying everything. During that period of time, millions upon millions of people died in that conflict, and that's kind of important to remember. And then you have that existential crisis of Palpatine saying, and he was honestly kind of right, that the Jedi are taking over. That Mace Windu has tried to assassinate me and also then install himself as a, a transition figure for the Republic. It's kind of all true. And then you wonder, okay, so this is why people traded away their Republic for the Empire, because they were not safe. They didn't feel safe. And you can say that the Empire provides safety. That's what this is all about. Um, the crime gangs, while they were in many ways colluded with and kind of given free license to have certain industries um, across the galaxy, crime was really cracked down on in imperial communities. Having stormtroopers on your streets stopped crime from ravaging your communities. And people are willing to make that trade-off. That's the lesson of Star Wars that I just don't think people really take seriously and actually internalize. And that's kind of why I always say that no matter how lefty or whatever Hollywood creators can be, their messages of their movies always undermine their own opinions. <laughs> oh, <laughs> which absolutely. Is, uh, which is amazing. I always say like their, their products are the case against the things that they say in their private lives. But, you know, they don't make that connection and that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I always found it was quite strange that I think um, – Captain America, The Winter Soldier was probably one of the most libertarian films to have come out the last decade because of, you know, a lot of the political messaging that was in it. And you get to learn about the Russo brothers and they're as lefty as they come, but they come out with this film, which is firmly, you know, against the idea of a surveillance state, against the idea of this omnipotent government system that's seen in S.H.I.E.L.D. So it, it's always cr quite strange to see that. But with that said, is there is there somewhat of a moral case for the empire 
in that situation when you take Palpatine out of it. Because you look at, you know, the, the universe under the Empire, well, you still have slavery with the Pike Syndicate kidnapping uh, the Wookiees. And then you, you look at Anakin's own mother during the days of the Republic, a slave. You look at other planets, there's slavery there. It seemed like things may have actually improved despite yeah, the sacrifices. I take your point, and I, I, I've read a lot of the, the cases for the Empire and sort of those contrarian arguments, but I, I really try to resist it. Um, I really try to resist those cases for the, the Empire, and even in hypotheticals. The Republic was rotten. Uh, the Republic was definitely geared towards the interests of the 1%, and it was not really in, in its own way a good way to run the galaxy. It's a very UN idea of how the world should be run. I, I happen to think that the best natural order of the world might have been a republic and then a separatist movement, which would have been the Confederate, uh, the Confederacy of Independence. Uh, I think that would have been the most virtuous way to order the galaxy. Um, but everybody was being played. But I, I definitely don't think we should buy in to the totalitarian alternative of the empire um, while they were able to eliminate certain aspects of that, that unsavoriness of the Republic, um, we do know what they, they sort of offered in its place, and it's not good. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, what you just mentioned about there being the Republic and then there being the, the separatist movement, I, I think the one thing that the films did not touch on that the animated series did was the fact that you still had some independent planets uh, you know, we Good spoke people. about, yeah, I mean, we spoke about Mandalore other than just, you know, the guys in the armor with the flamethrowers and the jetpacks. I mean, you look at the people of Mandalore, they have a giant, vibrant city. Their economy is doing well. And it was only because of that neutrality. Now they weren't neutral. Now they, they weren't just neutral for the heck of it. They had their, you know, their different clans and militias and they had death watch that that's a whole different thing but they were basically willing to say listen we will stay out of this but we're going to go ahead and kill anybody that tries to mess with us i think there's also yeah. a virtue in that if i if i may add one of the best episodes of the clone wars and it's something that everybody needs to watch is heroes on both sides and you can just kind of look it up uh, on YouTube and watch that as well. Padme goes to visit the Confederacy of Independent Systems during the height of the Clone War. And she's there to see her friend, Mina Bonteri, who left the Republic and joined the Confederacy of Independent Systems. They very much believe in the cause of separatism, regardless of being alongside a lot of corporate interests. They don't believe the Republic is is working. And Bonteri's son, whose, whose name is escaping me, but the younger Bonteri, um, he goes on to be one of the key figures of the rebellion as well, but he ends up actually in league with Saw Gerrera and the more radical aspects of the, the rebel alliance. The separatist movement is what becomes, Rimzo, the, the rebel alliance and the, the opposition to the empire. And I think that's really important for us all to internalize. Um, George Lucas made the, the prequel movies and his commentary on the separatist movement, all about his feelings on corporatism. Like, right, like he always talked about how, you know, the, the, the separatist movement is about my opinions on, on lobbying and corporate representation in Congress. But then why does George Lucas then turn right around and produce the Clone Wars and make the, the sympathetic case <laughs> for the separatist movement, right? And I think that there's something very, very important there. 
A- absolutely. And, you know, with all my questions, I've always had to preface with if there was no Palpatine, if there was no Sith. And it, it, when you take them out of it, it really just shows something that we've been dealing with all of human history, the levels of power, equal distribution of justice, individual yes. rights being represented. I think now, I think there's a reason why people are looking at shows in this moment, like Tiger King, like Waco, like the Clone Wars. And now we're looking between the lines. And I know some people get frustrated when we read too much into fiction, but really I I think there's more truth in fiction than nonfiction sometimes. Dare I say it, even somebody in a newsroom, there is sometimes more truth in fiction than there is even in what we consider the news. And this is the only way people are able to really find an outlet for the broader discussions that we might be too nervous to speak about in public. I think that's absolutely the case. And and Star Wars has continued to think uh, think really deeply, and I think in a positive way, about the way that government should be structured. Uh, one book that I like to recommend from the new Disney canon is Bloodline. It is the story of Leia's political career after Return of the Jedi, which leads her to being sort of on the outs with the New Republic and leading the resistance against the First Order. She's running to be chancellor. She wants to lead this New Republic, but she's part of a political party, which is a new thing in the New Republic um, called the, there's the Populist Party and the Centralist Party. And Leia, <laughs> Leia, yeah, Leia leads the Populist Movement and she leads the Populist Party within the New Republic. And their entire platform is that there should not be a central guiding governance from the New Republic and that it should mainly just be a forum for economic uh, and trading uh, matters for all of the planets to govern their own affairs. She, her position is that the, the New Republic has no business determining the culture and laws and governance of individual planets. And then there are the centrist party members who are very much sort of imperial, you know, nostalgists. And they look back on that period of centralization fondly, that there was something to be said for all the worlds being governed under one banner. But our hero, Leia does not believe in that. She believes in what I would call states' rights. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I, oh, I such just a turn of, from her mother. I just sort of wonder why why no one makes those connections. But you know, here we are. Uh, I I well, thanks to you, I now have more reading material after finishing Thrawn. I was going to jump to Tarkin, but now I think I want to jump to Bloodlines first. Stephen, we've had a great talk. I'm going to have to start bugging you about this way more often. So you brought this about yourself. If people want to go ahead and check out your podcast and everything else you do, how can they do so? Yeah, absolutely. I host the Beltway Banthas podcast. You can find us on Spotify, on Apple. I am not signing a $100 million contract to be exclusively on Spotify anytime I would totally soon. chill out. I would totally <laughs> chill out. <laughs> uh, I, would, I, would do it for, I would do it for $10, Remzo. But uh, you can find us on the RetroZap podcast network with a lot of other great Star Wars podcasts. Perfect. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, let's go ahead and keep this conversation going. Is there some validity to the Empire? Is Jar Jar evil? So much more we can discuss on Twitter. Follow me at HeyRemso and everywhere else. You know how the internet works. As always, you're listening to On The Run. Have a good night.
check out our other shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.